Mr. Olson. I think you can raise that if, it, if you need, choose yeah, to. Raise it a little bit. I'll get a little bit higher here. That might be better. May it please the court. Counsel. I, I am Doug Olson. I'm a attorney with the Federal Defender's Office here in Minnesota. I represent appellate Gene Shave in this appeal from his conviction. I'm going to focus uh, primarily on the search warrant issue uh, in this case. And if I have enough time, I'll talk about the four, four the uh, other crimes evidence uh, issue as well. The, in deciding the search warrant question in this case, which is a question concerning the uh, probable cause to search the entire uh, uh, the entire entirety of a multi-dwelling occupancy and whether the, the uh, officers followed the multiple occupancy rule. There's really four questions and four components for this court to take into mind to make a determination. Number one, this is a four corners question. This was decided on the four corners of the affidavit submitted in terms of the search warrant. And simply by looking at that, you can determine that the search warrant was overly broad and there was not probable cause in the warrant to search Mr. Shave's bedroom and his computers, which resulted in the discovery of the evidence in this case. So it's a four corners question, simply. Number two, the, the rental room multi-dwelling occupancy nature of this building was known by the officer and it's set forth in the search warrant affidavit itself. So this is not one of those cases where officers stumbled in believing it was a single family occupancy house and found something different or go into a one apartment building, find it subdivided. This was known and it's right there in the search warrant, black and, black and white, that he knew that this is a rental type property advertising rooms for rent. So there's no mistake here. We're under that area of law under multi-dwelling occupancy. Number three, the probable cause in this search warrant was for Paul Sutton, another occupant of the house. There was no probable cause for the search of, of Gene Shave's bedroom, his room, his rented room, or his devices. Yeah, but, the probable but, but, cause was set forth. Here, wait a minute. Wait. Yeah. Clearly, there was probable cause that somebody was ac somebody in that multi-occupant dwelling was accessing child porn, right? Yes, Paul Sutton. Okay. Well, I think only Paul Sutton because he was the person who who was on the account, right, on the Wi-Fi account. So, but didn't the the affidavit within the four corners also plead that it's common for people in a multi-occupancy dwelling to share a, a single account. Yeah, in a conclusory statement, the officers did state forth that, that that's a proposition that's common. The deficiency in that statement, number one, is, it's questionable, but let's, let's just go with it that as a general rule that that happens on occasion. We don't know the basis for that, but that's what the officer pleaded. But as to this specific 
rental take occupancy. The question is what's going on at this address, not what generally might go on in other places. And because the officer knew that this was a rental type property, the officer was obligated under our law uh, to do further investigation to determine uh, whether, whether where the probable causes existed inside the residence. Well, all right, what case give the case law for this obligation well, before well, before you seek a warrant? Yeah, well, the the Dorsey case uh, talks about the uh, it, actually the Dorsey case and the uh, uh, the uh, Gill case talk about the officer's obligation. Uh, to do further investigation when confronted with a multi-dwelling multi occupancy situation. For instance, I mean, you, you, you know, we see this in apartment buildings all the time. Well, you can't just go and search an entire apartment building when you know it's yeah, divided into complex they're apartment units. Different, sir. They're, they're different, though. They ha each have separate entrances, separate identifications, separate Wi-Fi access, that kind of thing, right? Well, the, uh, if you look at the cases cited, particularly in the Dorsey decision, which has been outstanding for quite a few years, uh, it lists the boarding room uh, cases as well, in which uh, the uh, the question is posed to cases which is the boarding room, which is exactly what we're dealing with here. And so the distinction here is an apartment building versus uh, some house. This isn't a fam single-family residency house. We, we know that. As the, at the moment that you know that this is a, a, a boarding rental room property... There's a difference between a, a dormitory and an apartment building. Well, this... Think of a military barracks. I mean, you've got multiple people with multiple devices. Yeah, well, this... and you may only have probable cause that something, someone, someone in there is doing something. What, why can't why can't a magistrate conclude, depending on the probable cause showing, uh, that a warrant a, ge a warrant general to the premises is appropriate? Because now we're into the generalized warrant problem, in which particularity and nexus is required. And now what we have here is this boarding rental room property, in which each individual owner of a rental room has a property right and a reasonable expectation of privacy that just because something else is going on, that they still maintain an expectation of privacy. So the question is the question of reasonableness. But once it's pointed out to that officer that this is a rental-type uh, situation, that requires additional investigation to make a determination what's going on in the household. No investigation in this case. Have you got a case since 1980 in which we've followed that? Applied that rule? No, but it's never. It's never been. That that's the well, rule. I've had I've had multiple occupancy cases. I don't think involving a boarding house or a rental room that's uh, been discussed in the Eighth Circuit. Well, we've certainly had apartment buildings, and when you've got unit numbers and so that are known, uh, that it's, it's a different issue. But but boarding houses and B and Bs and and. You know, fraternity houses, they're all different kinds of multiple occupancy dwellings. And each one of them, Fourth Amendment's always fact-specific. Yeah, well, in this... There are no general rules that apply to all of them. Yeah, well, in the, in the situation involving a boarding rental house, once it's known to the officer, like I said, this isn't a question where it wasn't known to the officer. The officer knew it. He had an obligation to, to do further investigation. Otherwise, you're just left with the general warrant, which is what this, what this, what happened in this case. A general warrant based on some suspicion about one person being involved in some uh, cyber tips. Paul Sutton. 
and the speculation, there's speculation about internet sharing, that's fine and dandy, but the question is what's going on inside this house. And at this point in time, there's as to Gene Shave, the search of his room and the search of his devices, that's pure speculation and not probable cause. To the extent the officer did any investigation, it is contrary to probable cause because what we do know is that the officer called his probation officer, Gene Shave, and discovered that Mr. Shave had a monitored phone. Well, that's obviously not using this, this access device. And then she was she told that he didn't have any computers. So the extent any investigation was done in this case, it discounts the finding of probable cause as to Mr. Shave. And that's all that's contained in this uh, four corners of the, uh, of the uh, affidavit. Didn't the affidavit identify f the cyber tips had identified four IP addresses there? Yeah, multiple I IP addresses, all going back to uh, Mr. Sh uh, Sutton as a subscriber. The IP addresses are assigned by the Internet, which I think of Comcast. They're assigned by the inter Internet person. And since they're all going back to Sutton, that would indicate he's the person uh, and the suspect here. It doesn't mean that there's multiple people accessing that, the, the device. That, that 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 would be an incorrect conclusion. It doesn't. The IP address doesn't go to the device. It goes to the the house. And so the the, the providers often change those. <coughs> That's something comes out of Comcast or the provider to the house. It doesn't go, come from the user, so that doesn't get uh, anywhere. Uh, I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to save at least. I've got 43 seconds or whatever. And if I'm able to, I'll talk about the I second issue. I have a question on, on, the, uh, on the evidentiary issues. Are you arguing 404B at all, or is this on a, what's on appeal all about the relationship between 414 and 403? I'm confused about that. Uh, it's really about what's uh, the relationship between 414 and, and uh, uh, 403B. Oh, that's what uh, I thought. It, 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 really, it really is, and the... the Brief, I guess, on both sides kind of deviates in parties, but if, you know, if you give me just a second. So what I'm arguing there is that the probation officer's testimony, let's focus on that, pages 38 through 104 of the transcript of this testimony, three probation officers talked about multiple acts of, uh, of, of child molestation. They talked about masturbation practices, and they talked about Mr. Shave being deceptive, dishonest, and manipulative. If you read that portion of the transcript, that's it. That's the prejudice. That's the 414, 413 prejudice that has to be balanced under 403, and that's it in a nutshell. If you look at that... that, that thank you. That, that's helpful. If you look at that, that's about the worst evidence I've ever seen, and I tried the case, so... Ms. Polachek. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, Emily Polachek, on behalf of the United States, and we are here to ask this court to affirm the conviction against Mr. Shave. Um, I will take the points that Mr. Olson brought up in order. Um, the first thing that he mentioned was that this is a four corners question, and the government would note that it um, cited in its brief two different standards that this court has used when reviewing um, the motions, denials of motions to suppress. And the government's briefing could have been clear on this issue. The government first cited um, two cases that, uh, that talked about um, containing the analysis to the four corners of the affidavit. 
those two cases, Roberts and Etheridge, dealt with instances when um, a defendant pleaded guilty and the appeal was before the court due to a conditional guilty plea. Later in the brief, we cited on page um, 35 and 36, LaGrange and Scarda, which talk about um, that the fact that this court can affirm a denial of a motion to suppress on any evidence that is supported in the record, including the trial record. And that uh, that is a better standard to apply here because that matches the procedural posture of what happened in this case, which is that the, the case actually did go to trial. And we have the trial record before us. It's the government's position that the court could affirm by simply looking at the four corners of the affidavit, but the court is free to look at the entirety of the record when doing so. And so it does seem to me that, uh, well, certainly uh, one key to this case is just looking at what facts were in that affidavit. And one that hasn't been discussed yet, I don't believe, is that uh, the court was informed that there was not one but two sex offenders at that address. That's uh, isn't correct. that kind of important here? Yes, Your Honor. It, I mean, I think that the important thing to note is that uh, child porn cases are a little bit different from other cases when we're going into a property because in that instance, we have a, a IP address that comes back to a specific property. And in this case, the property was the home. There was no unit number. As this court has noted, there's one entrance, there's one address. This isn't a multi-unit property with um, different units. But they are looking then for the electronic devices associated with the transmissions of child pornography. It happened to be that the one of the IP subscriber was one of two sex offenders that lived in that house. The fact that there were two different men who both lived in that house and had prior convictions involving uh, sexual crimes against children advanced the probability that there would be contraband evidence found on the electronic devices in that home. Um, it, the nexus here needed to be between those electronic devices and the transmissions that uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children became aware of. However, there is also a nexus between uh, those transmissions and Mr. Shave, and that nexus comes from the fact that Mr. Shave lived in that home and that he, his prior conviction was for the exact same offense that was being investigated here. This wasn't like Mr. Sutton, who had a hands-on offense. Mr. Shave had a prior conviction for possession of child pornography. And unlike Mr. Sutton, Mr. Shave had been designated by the Minnesota Department of Corrections as a level three sex offender, meaning that he represented the highest risk of reoffense. Counsel, what concerns me about this case are the, is one of the evidentiary issues, and specifically the uh, quantity and cumulative nature of the 414 evidence. Could you address for me why that was not an abuse of discretion to allow in so much evidence in such detail and in such cumulative nature? Your Honor, I think that if we look at specifically the, um, the what was 414 evidence in this instance, evidence of prior instances of child molestation, we're talking about 15 pages out of a 600-page transcript. Um, those pages are cited in our brief. And the evidence was not cumulative because the evidence came in in a couple different ways. First of all, Agent Moran testified about the, some of the facts underlying um, the 2010 conviction. She then uh, talked about several instances in which the defendant admitted to hands-on abuse of children under the age of 14. Agent Maurer talked about different instances of, um, and admissions that the defendant made about that abuse. 
And then Agent Chevalier-Jones simply verified that she knew that there had been admissions made. She did not testify about any details regarding those admissions. The evidence that was admitted, if we compare this to some other cases, particularly the cases cited in the briefs in this case, this evidence came in through probation officers. It was presented very clinically. And it was presented from admissions that the defendant himself made. This isn't like other 414 cases when the court is examining whether or not it was okay for a prior victim to come in and testify. That kind of testimony is arguably quite a bit more emotional and perhaps more inflammatory as the victim, him or herself, is up there talking about what that defendant did to them. In one case, as many as 20 years prior. And yet this court has affirmed instances of that information being admitted. I think it's clearly probative. The question is, how much is too much? I think that in this case, the court gave a very thorough and searching analysis of what would be appropriate to admit. There was evidence that the government sought to admit that Judge Hostrud excluded and said would tip the scales. And so that was kept out. The district court was very thoughtful about what would and would not come in. He did call this a close case, but it was the government's position that in close cases, that is the apex of when this court should be at its most deferential to the discretion and expertise of the trial court. Did the court give a limiting instruction? The court gave a limiting instruction at the beginning before any of the testimony came in and specifically told the jury that they could not convict Mr. Shave based on his prior acts. The court then reminded the jury of that instruction twice more when the other agents testified and then gave a final instruction before deliberations. Once again, the full instruction instructing them that they could not convict him based on these other instances. I would like to then briefly touch back on the search warrant issue and just this idea that, I mean, as I mentioned, this is a building that has one entrance and one address. This is a home that is shared by housemates in essence. So we have these men who are sharing one home and using, as was verified, one internet account. This is pretty common and the court can use its common sense when... Well, I wonder if there should be some sort of limiting principle. Let's take maybe Judge Loken's example of an army barracks where there's 100 recruits all under one roof and you get information that there's an IP address that's there. Would a warrant allow search of every single device that these 100 recruits have? I think these are going to be incredibly fact-specific scenarios. I think when we have one address and one entrance, I think that in that instance, the entire structure is open to a search. If the officers... The whole structure is. Well, if the officers were to go in and discover there's different wings or some aspect by which they can separate out the property into units that could... Well, how about another example? It's actually more similar to this one. You have a multi-unit house, but maybe with a common entrance. Can you search every room? Just as a general proposition. 
Um, I think, again, we, we need to look at the IP address and where is the IP address coming back to? Is this entire house or this entire structure using the same internet access? And then I think that we get into a situation like this where, where we're looking then at which devices um, within that home might have been the devices used for the transmissions. Um, the Gill case is an interesting one that the defense cites because in that case it was a home that had um, a, a just a, an address that was 2922, but then there was also a 2922A. And the, what they were looking for was in 2020, 2922A, um, but the warrant just said for 2922. Um, in that instance, though, what the court looked at was the fact that the affidavit contained sufficient information to show that uh, both of these units, though they were in one building, were um, had, that there was probable cause to believe that the, the drugs in that case could have been coming from either unit. And I think that's what distinguishes this case, is that if we look at the affidavit, there is sufficient information uh, to search the entirety of that home to believe that uh, child pornography users are keeping their devices in their bedrooms, that that's where uh, the police need to search to find those devices that were uh, making those transmissions. Sounds like Gill was a multiple entrance That is, situation. yes, Your Honor. It was a multiple entrance situation. So then if, the, if the warrant mentions one and they enter the other, the warrant doesn't protect it. There was a separate issue. But in execution issues at some point. Exactly. I, don't know how you, I don't know how you split up. That's exactly, Your Honor. Gil had an execution issue in it as well, and the court found good faith and upheld on that basis with respect to execution. So we would ask that this court affirm the conviction. Thank you. Mr. Olson, I think I used up a little bit of rebuttal chive you had I'll get, with a question about the 4, 414. I'll give you a minute if you like. Well, I, I take the minute. I appreciate that. Well, the, you know, the, the Fourth Amendment question here presented, and in a lot of these warrants, it is fact-specific, but what we, the distinction factor in distinguishing it from the Gill situation a little bit is this multiply, is that the officer knew ahead of time that this is a boarding house rental property, and at that point in time, Everybody in that place has got their own expectation of privacy. That isn't diminished simply because of this inter, uh, potential internet, potential internet sharing for which there's no evidence that that is going on within this occupancy. If that's the rule, then any place that's got an internet wireless into it with multiple rooms, that means you can search everything. That can't be. It can't be in the army barracks that you've got one ISP that we've discovered someone's uploading, downloading. Uh, child pornography that you can search, you know, a hundred people's uh, internet devices. It can't be the rule, and so we find out in here. You know, this is the, this is you know, a, a, a discrete limitation on the rule is that once you find out that you've got multiple resident occupancies, boarding room or whatever, eyes, the officer's got to do additional investigation. It's got to be in the warrant so we can limit so we're not violating other people's rights. Mr. Shave isn't identified as having used the internet or having or even having devices in that house. So he should have been, uh, his privacy, uh, expectations of privacy as to his room and his devices uh, should have been protected and uh, the search was overly broad in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting fact situation and uh, seems like every Fourth Amendment case is. It's been... Uh, 
well briefed and arguments been helpful and we'll take it under advisement.